0: Welcome once again to Radio In Vivo, your link to the Triangle Science community here on WCOM-LP Chapel Hill and Carrboro. This is Ernie Hood. I am a freelance science writer. And each week here on the program, we bring you cutting-edge information about what's going on in science here in the Triangle area, one of the world's leading hubs of scientific research, development, and innovation. You can email us at radioinvivo at earthlink.net and you can access a full archive of our hundreds of past programs at radioinvivo.net. The Burroughs Welcome Fund is a Golden Voices underwriter here on WCLM and Radio Invivo. Vivo. The Burroughs Welcome Fund supports excellence in science education across North Carolina. The fund believes that providing students with engaging and interactive curriculum helps to spark curiosity for careers in science, mathematics, and technology. You can learn about education grant opportunities for North Carolina schools and teachers at www.bwfund.org. Radio in Vivo is underwritten by Chapel Hill Eye Care, located at 235 South Elliott Road in Chapel Hill. Chapel Hill Eye Care provides comprehensive eye care to people of all ages. Healthy eyes for a lifetime. Chapel Hill Eye Care, 919 968 Four seven seven four. Radio En Vivo is also underwritten by the Triangle Center for Evolutionary Medicine, or TriSEM, a nonprofit center exploring the intersection of evolutionary science and medicine. TriSEM is jointly operated by Duke University, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, North Carolina State University, and North Carolina Central University. TriSEM is an incubator that promotes innovative development in the theory and practice of evolutionary medicine by fostering cross-disciplinary collaborations among triangle-based scholars, physicians, public health workers, and more. Radio In Vivo is supported by NC State University's Genetic Engineering and Society or GES Center the GES Center works to integrate scientific knowledge and public values, shaping the futures of biotechnology. Positioned at the nexus of science and technology, social sciences, and humanities, the Center engages in collaborative research, education, and engagement by generating knowledge and fostering balanced and inclusive dialogue around emerging genetic engineering technologies and its products. Learn more by visiting GES Center website, research.ncsu.edu/ges, and follow them on Twitter at GES Center, NCSU. Finally, Radio En Vivo is underwritten by GeneCentric Therapeutics Incorporated of Research Triangle Park. GeneCentric is pioneering the advanced classification of cancers for more effective drug development and more accurate diagnosis and treatment of patients through its core technology, the Cancer Subtype Platform. More information is available at GeneCentric.com. WCOM and Radio and Vivo thank this terrific group of underwriters for their support. A few years ago, someone I knew suddenly developed a severe allergy to consuming red meat. It seemed bizarre at the time, but now we know that it's not particularly uncommon, especially here in the southeastern United States. Not a category we want to take a lead in, but it is a source of pride that we have one of the world's leading experts on the phenomenon right here in the Triangle, Dr. Scott Commons, who joins me this week on Radio En Vivo. Scott is an associate professor of medicine in the Division of Rheumatology, Allergy, and Immunology at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And he is on the faculty at the UNC Thurston Arthritis Research Center. He is an allergist and an immunologist, and he sees patients at the UNC Allergy and Immunology Clinic. The root cause of the red meat allergy is a substance called alpha gal. And Scott is at the forefront of research on it as he and his colleagues discovered that people with the red meat allergy have often been bitten by a specific tick called the Lone Star Tick. Scott earned his B.S. at Wake Forest University and his M.D. and Ph.D. degrees from the Medical University of South Carolina. He spent several years as a postdoc and then as a faculty member at the University of Virginia, which is important to the story and then in 2015 he joined the UNC faculty. Scott Commons, welcome to Radio and Vivo.
1: Thanks, I'm glad to be with you.
0: There is so much to talk about with this fascinating scientific story and important public health issue, but I'd like to start our conversation with a definition. What exactly is this substance called alpha-gal? It sounds like something out of a romantic comedy
1: it does but unfortunately it's just um two galactose sugars that are hooked in a certain spatial alignment that chemists refer to as an alpha 1 3 linkage and it's it's a it's a glycosylation product meaning it's uh, a series of sugars that are uh, added to proteins or fats in order for the cells to traffic them uh, more efficiently.
0: I see. And do do I take it correctly that humans do not naturally have alpha gal uh, unlike the rest of the uh, non-primate mammals?
1: You're correct. The the story is actually a bit nuanced when it comes to humans containing alpha gal. We we re- The short answer is we really don't, but at some point in the production of our blood group substances, the sugars that define us as A, B, or AB, um, our blood types, there is a step in that process where we have two galactose sugars linked in an alpha-1-3 alignment, but they very quickly get a fucose sugar added to them. And so at the end, we really don't make alpha-gal, but if you drill down technically at one step in the process for our blood group production, we, for lack of a better way to say it, kind of do.
0: I see, but we do make an immune response to exposure to it, right?
1: That's right. And that's Probably the more important point in this story, which is, since we don't really make alpha-gal as humans, it appears that the bacteria we all have in our intestines that we now call the microbiome, those bacteria stimulate an immune response uh, that is directed against this alpha-gal sugar, meaning the bacteria have alpha-gal um, either on their cell, uh, cell surface or in other um, proteins that essentially stimulate our immune response. So we, all humans, make an immune response to alpha-gal. And you know, obviously we'll get into this more, but some people then make an allergic one.
0: Ah, okay. And and there's the rub, I guess, right? That's right. Well, Scott, let's circle back and, and relate the whole story to our listeners, because it, it is a fascinating story. Uh, how did the immune, immunology community first become aware of alpha AlphaGal? I know this dates back to your years at the University of Virginia.
1: It actually dates back um, even further when you when you talk about the immune response to alpha-gal in general, because the truth is transplant surgeons have known about the human immune response to alpha-gal for many years because it stands essentially as the barrier for xenotransplantation. So it's the reason that you can't put a pig liver in a human because the pig liver would be decorated with alpha-gal since it's a lower mammal, and humans, because we all make an immune response to alpha-gal, we immediately would reject that liver. So alpha-gal and the immune response to it is the cause of hyperacute rejection. So the transplant surgeons had known that. The The portion of this story that's uh, fairly new Uh, is the idea that humans could make an allergic response to alpha-gal. And that portion of the story um, did, in large part, develop at the University of Virginia. And that essentially was um, brought on by this observation that patients in the South and in the East were reacting on first infusion to a brand-new cancer uh, therapeutic. And it turns out that that cancer therapeutic was heavily decorated with alpha-gal sugars. It was made in a mouse cell line. And the mouse cells, as they would normally do, add the glycosylation product alpha-gal to various proteins and lipids. And so in the production process, those cells added alpha-gal to this cancer therapeutic. It was a monoclonal antibody um, and its generic name is cetuximab. So there were, mm-hmm. there were humans reacting to cetuximab throughout the South and, in the, and the, in the East. And it was a first infusion type of reaction, meaning they'd never seen that medication before and they were having severe reactions, not just hives or itching. They were having significant decreases in blood pressure. There were even a couple of deaths associated with cetuximab-based reactions. And the initial um, understanding and investigation of what was causing those reactions happened at the University of Virginia with my um former mentor, doctor Platt Platts-Mills, in his lab, and they identified that it was alpha-gal on the surface of cetuximab and that the patients actually had an IgE antibody that recognized alpha-gal, and that was the cause of these first infusion reactions.
0: Well, that that's fascinating. So it was a real detective story, you know, looking at a seeing a pattern and trying to uncover what was going on with it.
1: Yeah, and part of that, we, or or, um, doctor platts Platt-Mills and and the group at the time, worked very closely with the company that was producing Cetuximab, and when they believed that that Alpha-Gal could be the issue, they actually went back to the company and said, look, could you make another version of this Cetuximab that is produced in a cell line which doesn't glycosylate with alpha-gal that would allow us to check and see if the the binding that we're seeing uh, goes away and that and those experiments um, were performed and showed that exactly that when cetuximab was produced without alpha-gal the patient serum no longer recognized um, the molecule demonstrating that really it was uh, alpha-gal that that was the key um, epitope.
0: So how did you and your colleagues uh, subsequently connect the dots from cetuximab reactions to red meat allergies?
1: Yeah, and and this is, I think, one of the great lessons for people that are starting in science, which is that and sometimes it's, it's serendipity and, and a prepared mind. But what really happened is we were learning a lot about alpha-gal. And these observations with the cetuximab story were really already underway when I joined Dr. Platts-Mills' lab. So I, we were all kind of reading a fair amount to bring ourselves up to speed on this, on this alpha-gal immune response. And we were aware at the time that alpha-gal was made by all lower mammals and not present in humans. So when we started to see just a few patients in the allergy clinic who reported to us an idea that perhaps they were allergic to beef and pork and lamb, um, we, by virtue of having, having that alpha-gal-related knowledge very current for us, we sort of ran uh, with the idea that, gosh, could, this, could these patients' food allergic reactions be explained by the cross-reactivity and presence of alpha-gal in all these various mammalian meats? So because we had the test, the blood test, for the cetuximab allergy, which turned out to be alpha-gal, we essentially ran that same blood test on these new patients who were reporting the food-based reactions, and sure enough, they were all positive as well. So that's really kind of how that came together.
0: That must have been quite a eureka moment at that point.
1: It was. And, you know, looking back, I don't think we had any awareness that this was going to be something that I'd be on on the radio with you 10 years later discussing. We, we really had just a handful of patients at that time, and in 2009, when we first published this idea of, of delayed allergic reactions to red meat being due to an alpha-gal allergy, there were only 24 patients in that article, 19 of which came from, from central Virginia and five from southern Missouri. And I think we really felt like, at the time, it was an interesting observation, but perhaps not one that was going to affect thousands of people throughout the South, the East, and then globally as well.
0: So there was actually very little or nothing in the literature uh, prior to your initial publication in 2009.
1: That's correct. There, there, um, There really wasn't anything about the idea of a kind of red meat allergy where it crosses beef and pork and lamb and and goat and bison and venison, nothing to that extent. And the truth is, beef allergy was, in large respect, case-reportable at that point because it was really unusual. Mm-hmm. Um, and interestingly, as... As our publication or our paper made it to, to print, we became aware of a skilled investigator in Australia, Dr. Cheryl Van Noonan, who had reported to the medical society there in Australia. I think at a meeting at Sydney that she was concerned that her patients were developing a delayed allergy to beef and. We didn't have any knowledge of of her observation, but it interestingly, I, I think it really helped support the idea that this phenomenon was actually occurring. It wasn't it wasn't make believe, even though it kind of sounded so unusual.
0: I see. Well, that that also must have been a a good moment of confirmation then.
1: It was, and I think it it solidified the idea that um, that. This was a true – because at the time we didn't – we had not challenged patients as we often do in food allergy. We hadn't fed anyone beef or pork and observed them. So it, I think it did help validate the idea that uh, the patients were reporting these reactions to beef, pork, and lamb. And and it, the other thing that was really a change for – well, two other things, a big change for food allergy based on that on our report – and one is that the reactions could be delayed that was um something that's fairly unusually reported and secondly that they were all, all the patients we had at that time were adults so these are people who had safely eaten red meat for 30 40 50 years and then all of a sudden were developing new onset allergic symptoms and that's a big change um from the way we think about the typical food allergy paradigm as well.
0: Absolutely. Well, Scott, now that we uh, start to see what was going on and you you had the the story in hand, when and how did you figure out the tick bites were involved?
1: Right. So that's a another uh, bit of a leap because it, at the time we all were wondering what in the world is causing these patients to suddenly develop this Red meat allergy, and um, you know, we looked at various uh, parasites that perhaps people in the south might have that that others wouldn't, and we really didn't see much of an association. And it turns out that there were two things that occurred. One is we began to try to map the places where we had identified patients with this meat allergy, but also where our colleagues and other allergists had reported to us that they were also finding patients. So, you know, this is a year and a half, two years later after the initial report. And if we we were looking for maps that might overlay uh, or at least um, be similar to that, that geographic uh, expanse, and mm-hmm. it turned out that Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever was one of those maps that really meshed with the places where we were finding or hearing about um, patients developing these allergic reactions. And so that was one thing. So it started us thinking about ticks. But the second and, and probably the more important of the two was that a few members of the lab developed allergic reactions um after eating meat following um, hikes where they had gotten numerous tick bites. And so that was, the, I think, the real um, idea that we should actually go back and begin to ask our patients now about tick bites and their outdoor exposure history because we really had not taken any of that information when we were first – Enrolling folks because of their meat allergy, and when we did that, we found a significant association. Greater than ninety percent of our of our study subjects had um, reported either tick bites or chigger bites or seed tick bites, and that really began to cement for us the idea that this possibly could be ticks.
0: So how did you uh, then discover uh, that it seems to come specifically from the lone star tick, at least in this region?
1: So that also was the w- was doing some mapping and and trying to identify which ticks would be the most likely culprit ticks, and the the distribution of the Amblyomma americanum, which is the lone star tick, really fit perfectly with the maps that we were generating um, from patients who were being reported to, to have developed this. And then we've also, we began to ask patients to bring in the ticks that had bitten them if they were able to. And then um, some of the lab members uh, who had uh, multiple seed tick bites, we were able to send those ticks off Analysis um, and they came back as as lone star tick nymphs as well.
0: That that's fascinating. It it's amazing that it would strike so close to home and allowed you to gather some uh, important evidence.
1: Yeah, it, it's true. We we really benefited from having people who were uh, close to us scientifically and and in the lab to be able to work on our tests and um, in many ways kind of fine-tune the assays for detecting the the allergy.
0: And uh, I understand that in other parts of the world people have actually developed the red meat allergy from the bites of other breeds of ticks. That's kind of scary.
1: You're right. So in thinking about Cheryl Van Noonan, for example, the the investigator in Australia who had reported this uh, around the same time we did, she also was concerned about tick bites and they in Australia, they don't have Lone Star ticks at all. They have a, a version of exodes um, and exodes holocyclus, I believe. Um, and then we were hearing of, um, patients being found by a colleague and collaborator of, our, of ours in southern Sweden, where, again, they don't have um, Lone Star ticks. So I agree with you. It, it raises the possibility, certainly, that um, I don't know if all ticks can do this, but, but we certainly know of many species that can.
0: I see. So fortunately, within the the sound of our voice, as it were, the Lone Star Tick is really the culprit.
1: Correct.
0: Scott, tell us about the Alpha-Gal-free mouse model that you have developed. Uh, What types of studies have you conducted with it, and uh, what has that model told you uh, as you've been working with it?
1: One of the reasons we really felt as though we needed a mouse model, and you're correct, we use mice that are deficient or uh, engineered knockouts for Alpha-Gal in hopes that then they would, as humans be able to develop an allergic response. So we use alpha-gal deficient mice with the idea that it's really difficult to isolate tick bites in humans. And obviously we can't go putting ticks on humans to test our hypothesis that tick bites cause this allergy. So I think the in my mind, one of the primary uses of the mouse model is to really ask the question, when someone goes into the woods and gets tick bites and develops this allergy, how do we know it's not from poison ivy or ant bites or mosquito bites or something else, some other exposure that one might have outdoors? So the mouse model allows us to isolate that, and what we have seen in uh in this model um, is that when we inject a tick salivary gland extract which our collaborator um, Dr. Uh, Karim at the University of Southern Mississippi uh, prepares for us we see a nice um, rise in the allergic response uh, of these mice after Usually we have to inject the tick salivary gland extract over uh, several weeks and in, in various time points, but they become essentially immunized um, against alpha gal, and so I think the the initial uh, piece of data that is the mo- is quite telling from this is that these mice, in fact, do replicate the. IGE response we see in humans following tick salivary gland extract immunization. So I think it really makes and solidifies the point that ticks can certainly do this. And secondly, what we've seen is in those mice that we've immunized with the salivary gland extract, if we then feed them pork meat, they develop an allergic response similar um, to humans, in that it's it's a bit delayed, they don't develop it within the first five or ten minutes it's It's often half an hour forty five minutes later um, mice don't necessarily get hives and and have trouble breathing they They often will have a decreased body temperature as their measure of an allergic reaction. They do itch as well, but they don't they don't get um, the swelling and redness often that we associate with humans who have an allergic reaction. So we, my point is that we measure the allergic response a little differently in mice, but it, for all the world, looks very similar to um, the same mechanism that we're seeing in
0: humans. Well, and I know these experiments uh, have helped you to kind of unlock the mechanisms uh, involved with this. Uh, for example, have you been able to determine how the tick introduces the alpha-gal into humans?
1: Um, we have not yet, but that is the next, literally the experiments that are going on now are, um, as you say, we've been feeding these, uh, or Dr. Karim has been feeding these ticks on um, typically sheep's blood to so, um, uh a mammalian source of alpha-gal. And I think um, that you've correctly indicated what the model will allow us to test is, can we now feed these ticks on, say, a a chicken or reptile blood, something that is a non-alpha-gal source, and then repeat the experiments and see, do the mice still develop the same allergic response? and if they do um that would indicate that the blood meal is not really the source of alpha gal it, it may be an endogenous protein present in tick saliva
0: mhm mhm i understand that it it may be uh, an enzyme in the tick saliva that acts as an adjuvant stimulating the immune response is that about right
1: that's right we we have a, an enzyme um we've identified an enzyme in the in tick saliva that um is cross reactive and also present in the venom of bees and wasps and certainly folks are are familiar with the idea that that people who are stung can develop an allergic response to um bee or wasp sting and mm-hmm. given that cross reactivity or um, actually, the the shared presence of this enzyme, we're we're concerned um, that this could be one of the possible culprit enzymes. And and as you indicated, perhaps it works as an adjuvant to sensitise humans to alpha gal that might be present also in the in the tick salivary gland. I think at the moment our our unanswered question. Well, we have we have many unanswered questions, but one of the biggest ones is to say, um, is that alpha-gal coming from the blood meal or is it already there in the tick saliva?
0: Sure, that makes sense. Well, uh, in, in looking into this, Scott, I uh, was fascinated to see that uh, there is some thinking also that the tick's microbiome might be involved in that it may have changed somehow.
1: Yeah, you know, that does concern me because I think we all wrestle with this question of why are these reactions, why is this allergy happening now? What has changed? And, you know, when you talk to patients that have this allergy, many of them are raised in the South and lived out lived in in the country and, and enjoyed the outdoors and have a long history of tick bites, but yet they've just recently developed this meat allergy. And so it makes you wonder, has something changed about the tick? And if so, could that explain why someone who may have been bitten by ticks for 50 years all of a sudden develops an allergic response? And I think the the microbiome of the tick is one of those possible changes.
0: And what about the potential role of the human microbiome?
1: Well, and I think that's a great point. It, there may be something about the the an, a certain individual's human microbiome that may be altered in a way, whether it's a course of antibiotics that then you get a tick bite after, and now. Your microbiome is a little different, and so you actually do make an allergic response to that tick bite i I think that's an excellent um idea and and we're certainly open to the possibility that perhaps it's not the tick at all that maybe there maybe the change, so to speak, is happening on the human side the When I think about that, you know the to me. What we have to wrestle with is what is happening in the U.S. that could also be happening in southern Sweden, Europe, and Australia at about the same time. And, and so in many ways putting together a coherent hypothesis that involves all these disparate, um, geographic locations is really a challenge.
0: I bet. Is there any thought that climate change may be involved?
1: Climate change has been, um, has been floated as a potential idea, um, as have, uh, pesticides and the idea that, um, perhaps some of these tick based repellents that we use, um, could have caused subtle changes in, in the tick. They call it the sialome. So the, the, um, salivary gland microbiome, so to speak, that this is a a site of uh, fairly rapid um, uh, mutation and change, so that perhaps the tick thialome has changed in response to some of the ubiquitous tick repellents.
0: Well, there's a, another scary thought. <laughs>
1: yeah, it's true.
0: You are listening to Radio In Vivo, and my guest today is Dr. Scott Commons, an allergist and immunologist from UNC Chapel Hill, and we are discussing red meat allergy. Scott, I'd like to spend much of our remaining time together talking about some of the practical aspects involved with the red meat allergy phenomenon. Uh, First of all, what should one do if you think you've been bitten by a lone star tick?
1: Well... I think the first thing to do is um, to try not to worry too much because the truth is many people are bitten by Lone Star ticks and ticks in general, but only a very few, we believe, actually develop an allergic response. So, I tell people initially, I I don't think there's anything to do or change right away, but certainly... um, keeping the tick is not unreasonable and um, then just perhaps being aware of um, the possibility that a new onset case of hives or itching or GI distress could be related to the development of a new food allergy and if that were to occur then I think it's time to worry about getting a blood test done to try to see if perhaps that the diagnosis of alpha gal allergy is um, appropriate.
0: Will the lone star tick uh, adhere and swell when they bite you as as other ticks do?
1: Yes, they will latch and feed um, and take a blood meal, and so when that when the adult ticks uh feed on a human um, they can essentially grow in size multiple times and become engorged with blood and that is more typical of the later stages of the lone star tick and other ticks as well often the the ticks that are quite small that that are commonly referred to as seed ticks which are the larval form even if they uh, attach um, and feed, they don't become significantly swollen to the eye.
0: Well, are there uh, any particular identifying features uh, of the Lone Star tick that we should be aware of?
1: Yes, the female adults have a white spot on their back, and that's where the Lone Star uh, moniker comes from. Other... Yeah, so other than the the female adults with that white spot, in my mind, the the adult male um, Amblyomma Americanum ticks, the Lone Star ticks, they, to a, sort of an untrained observer, they often look sort of uh, like you might think of a, a dog tick or a brown tick. They don't, the males do not have the identifying white spot.
0: I see, but are they just as likely to cause the alpha-gal reaction?
1: That's a great question, and um, we actually don't know yet.
0: Okay, well, let us know when you figure that out. (laughs) Uh, Well, Scott, what precautions should people take if they're going to be in an area that is potentially tick-infested? Or, you know, I felt obligated to ask you that question, but is it even a relevant question since apparently more than half of tick bites happen in people's own yards
1: Well I think it is a it's I think it's a fair question um and your point is well taken that you don't necessarily have to be deep in the woods to get a tick bite and I think that's always a good reminder the the probably the easiest precaution is um if you're going to be in your own yard and and um, you know, gardening or whatnot, you could you can use um a deep based um tick repellent uh insecticide spray to to and that can be applied to your skin. If you're um, if you're hunting or you're deeper in the woods um you and you're gonna be sort of fully clothed, then often we um will talk about using a permethrin Based spray, and those are stronger and need to be applied directly to clothing and not the skin but of course, the other um, uh sort of more mundane but very important things are to do a you know stop and do a, a a tick check um fairly frequently, and then certainly at the end of your exposure um you know do a a good once over um to make sure that any ticks are removed, um, and and if you're going to be in the woods and and there is a trail, it's certainly advisable to kind of stick to the trail if you can, um, since there should be less ticks on that portion than in the in the off trail woods.
0: I see. Very good. That's all all good advice. Well, Scott, uh, I was wondering why the allergic to reaction to the Lone Star tick bite uh, is characterized by being delayed uh, for hours compared to other allergic responses that are more immediate, uh, such as peanut allergies, for example.
1: Yeah, and this is an area that we're concerned with as well um, in the sense that it begins to kind of change the way that we perhaps think about uh, food allergic reaction. So, it, I think our best hypothesis at the moment is that the delayed reactions to red meat are largely due to the idea that um, fat is, in fact, the culprit antigen. Meaning, um, it is really the the fat which is causing. The allergy cells to react and Mm -hmm. the reason we're focused on fat is um, it can be glycosylated so it can have sugars put on it and in those scenarios it's called a glycolipid and the absorption of fat is really quite different from proteins or um, carbohydrates so fat is Packaged ultimately into small spheres and is absorbed across uh, the brush border of our intestine in a very deliberate way, and then it's repackaged into the lymphatics, which traffic fat, and this is occurring um, in our in, in the um, in the lymphatics that are associated with our intestine, our gut, and. Then it, it, as it's packaged in the l- lymphatics, it then traffics ultimately up to an area in uh, our neck where it empties through the thoracic duct into our bloodstream. So that's a very different path uh, of absorption than we might have for other, for proteins or for carbohydrates. So that process the um, assembly of of fat, the the trafficking through the lymphatics, and ultimately the delivery to the thoracic duct appears to take uh, roughly three hours. So it fits kind of nicely with the delayed reactions.
0: Sure. And you also saw that uh, in the cancer patients you mentioned earlier who were receiving the medication intravenously, they responded right away.
1: That's, that's an excellent point and it makes the, it makes the case that it's really the delivery of alpha-gal that begins to explain whether people react quite quickly or in a delayed way. It's, we worried at first that perhaps there was some, because carbohydrates can often be a weaker antigen, so there was this idea that well, perhaps alpha gal is a somewhat weaker antigen, and it just takes several hours for it to slowly cause the allergic response to occur but i but your point is um what we eventually came back to, which is well, if it happened very quickly with the cetuximab um reactions, yes, they were getting a fair amount more of alpha gal, but it was occurring in the bloodstream and those, those, the time course of those reactions would argue that as an antigen, alpha-gal is, is plenty able to cause an allergic reaction, that it's really must be sort of a processing issue with food.
0: Yeah, absolutely makes sense. Well, um, Scott, what type of reaction do people with this uh, problem display? What are the typical symptoms that are, are seen in the reaction?
1: Yeah, I'm glad you asked that because this, again, begins to, to change the way we think about food allergy, I believe. And there are some patients who, and probably most patients, meaning over 50%, who get kind of typical food allergic reactions in that they'll have itching, redness, hives, uh, maybe some swelling of of lips or face. Sometimes they'll have shortness of breath um, and can even have um, kind of uh, passing out or, or you know, a, de- a decrease in their blood pressure, hypotension. Um, but there's a second group of patients with this food allergy who really don't describe skin-based reactions at all they don't get telltale hives or itching but yet their tend to their reactions tend to be much more gastrointestinal in nature so they describe really like um, intense gastrointestinal cramping and pain sometimes nausea vomiting maybe diarrhea but With that, they won't, they really won't describe itching or, or skin manifestations at all. And so I think this has changed kind of our awareness of what the food allergic reactions can look like. Perhaps this is not necessarily true for food allergens like peanut milk and egg, but it certainly has broadened our thoughts about who should we test for alpha-gal allergy because many patients that get this significant gastrointestinal uh, syndrome, if you will, are, have been seen in the emergency department, have been worked up for um, gallbladder issues um, and even irritable bowel syndrome. So I think it it makes us... Um, needs to open our minds to the idea that particularly these nighttime-based reactions where you've eaten a hamburger or a hot dog for dinner and you get abdominal pain at midnight or 1 a.m., that, that may not be a gallbladder or an irritable bowel issue at all. It, it may really be a food allergy just coming in a, in a different form than we're used to.
0: I see. Well, that that's very interesting and it seems like the the individuals in that group wouldn't even necessarily think food allergy at that point.
1: And you're absolutely right that it's it's really difficult to connect that kind of middle of the night symptomatology to what you've had to eat 4 or 5 or 6 hours before.
0: Or you you may just think you have a mild case of food poisoning or something along those lines.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Scott, when when is it time, uh, in the midst of a uh, response like this, when is it time to act in an emergency manner? When do you know you're in serious trouble and it's time to make that call or get yourself to the ER?
1: The easy answer to that is, if you are having trouble breathing if you feel like your your throat is tightening um certainly if if you're feeling uh lightheaded or if you pass out you know having someone administer epinephrine or call 911 is critical um cough is one of a of a worrisome symptom to me as well because it often means that there's something um bothering the upper airway, uh, pathway. Um, and so often in this, in that kind of scenario, when we add cough to, um, hives, then we would please, you know, move forward with, um, the auto injector. But I think the more subtle symptoms, sometimes people are a little confused about, you know, when should you use the auto injector? Um, and, We classically teach this idea of kind of two organ systems, meaning the involvement of two organ systems leading to um, use of epinephrine. So if someone just has hives, we would consider that skin as the organ system, and the treatment would be an antihistamine. Um, But if you had hives and GI distress, so nausea, diarrhea, vomiting, then you would essentially have cutaneous and gastrointestinal organ systems. So in that scenario, epinephrine would be absolutely a reasonable treatment. Um, And obviously with respiratory stuff, um, when airway is concerned, we don't wait for a second organ system.
0: I see. Well, that that's very good advice. Well, um, Scott, is there any treatment available for the red meat allergy? Uh, for example, is desensitization uh, available, such as has been developed right there at UNC for peanut allergies?
1: At the moment, no. We're obviously very interested in desensitization-based um, treatment, since, as you as you mentioned, we we have done. That here, for um peanut as well as some of the other uh, childhood food allergies, so we're we're curious to figure out what what form that would look like for our alpha gal allergic patients. I think one of the one of the hurdles is the known association of red meat intake with various. Uh, diseases such as heart disease or cardiovascular uh, issues, high cholesterol, what have you. So I don't, we don't want to be recommending um, at this point in time, you know, daily beef fat um, for our patients. But I do think that there are ways that we can innovate around the desensitization approach and find the appropriate um, form of alpha-gal that we could use, and so we're, we're working to do that. I think the other approach we're concerned with is, and this gets back to the, the idea of the venom allergy that we talked about, which is could we find an enzyme or adjuvant that we could um, use to do allergy shots, for tick bites in the same way that we do allergy shots for bee or wasp allergy.
0: I see. Well, that, that will be interesting to follow that line of research. I guess uh, it's, it's a fortunate thing that, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but apparently this allergy is actually transient in many people and uh, eventually in a lot of people will just resolve.
1: That's correct. And, and the idea that the allergy begins to, to fade or resolve on its own is something that we've seen um, kind of over and over again, in our, especially in our patients who don't end up with sort of weekly, daily tick bites. The occasional tick bite uh, victim is someone whose alpha-gal allergy is more likely to go away, at least in the studies we have so far. The problem with that is that an additional tick bite seems to sort of reset the clock, meaning mm. your your blood test becomes quite positive again, and you've just now added, say, another two years on um, to seeking resolution of the allergy. And it, in the, it's in that vein that we are thinking about the idea of could a tick-based, allergy shot, prevent that recurrence or that um, re-inoculation, if you will, of the subsequent tick bite and then prolonging the condition of the red meat allergy.
0: So it's possible to ultimately uh, provide a vaccine uh, after someone has already been diagnosed? Is that what you're telling me?
1: That's what our hope is, yes.
0: Okay, great. Great. Well, uh, here's hoping that that works out. Uh, and are you actively uh, studying that at this point?
1: We're, And this is another use of our mouse model. So we're trying to identify what the culprit enzymes or proteins are in tick saliva. And, and that, I think, was the source of our discussion earlier. Um, you know, have we found one of the adjuvants? And if so, can we then immunize patients in a in an allergy shot type of regimen so that when they're exposed to that enzyme again that they don't make an allergic response meaning that the that the red meat allergy would then still be resolved
0: is it possible to have a a mild form of this allergy
1: yes it is and um I'm I'm glad you brought that up because some patients become very sensitive to alpha-gal in various forms, not just meat, but perhaps in dairy as well, even gelatin, um, and then further downstream um, products that may contain certain mammal sources as well. But other patients who um, have this allergy really are not overly sensitive, and if they are able to avoid large amounts of red meat, then they do quite fine, and they may even be able to have dairy in their diet, perhaps a, a a bite of bacon, if you will, or something along those lines, without a significant clinical reaction. So it's as if there's a continuum of sensitivity.
0: Sure, which I, I would assume that's true of basically of all allergies.
1: You're right, and, and we see that in the childhood peanut, tree nut, milk, and egg allergies, where you know some some children have difficulty being on an airplane where um there's peanut powder or dust, but yet other children can safely consume something that is labeled may contain or processed in a facility. so you're right, there is this continuum throughout much of the allergic disease um, world.
0: Scott, in terms of the public health aspects, uh, how many people uh, seem to have Red meat allergy, at least in the U.S. Uh, what kind of population are we talking about?
1: We're estimating at this point, based on um, data from other allergists as well as our own uh, cohorts and and our crowdsourced uh, website, that roughly five thousand people in the U.S. Um, we're confident have the allergy, and I don't. I'm not as confident with the worldwide uh, numbers, but this is. Uh, admittedly probably on the it's probably a conservative estimate Um so I think it's it's clearly expanding from the 24 patients that we had identified in 2009 but we're not quite sure of uh, the full scope of how many people are affected at this point
0: I see well um, I wanted to ask you about the spread of the information about this condition are most allergists and immunologists aware of it and know what to look for diagnostically?
1: Yes, I believe that within the the field of allergy and immunology, most folks um, who are, are board certified and, and you know attend conferences and annual meetings and that type of thing are aware of this, particularly in the South and in the East. Um, they're certainly can be areas where it's not as as known, and so folks may not be quite as knowledgeable but i I do believe that awareness of it is expanding, particularly amongst allergists and um, you know we we do try to raise awareness as much as we can, and certainly getting to the front line folks who are um seeing people in urgent care or emergency department situations is also a goal of ours.
0: Well, Scott, you are doing some tremendous work leading the charge to understand and hopefully combat the red meat allergy that's striking more and more people. Thank you for sharing your thoughts with us today on Radio En Vivo.
1: Thanks so much, Ernie.
0: We've got some great guests lined up in the coming weeks here on Radio En Vivo. You can check the website, radioinvivo.net, or our Facebook site for our lineup of upcoming shows. Join us again next time. For Radio in Vivo, your link to the Triangle Science community right here on Volunteer powered WCOM-FM, Carborough, and Chapel Hill. Thanks for listening, and we will catch you next time.